0: It's an exciting announcement, and that's just to let you all know that Everett is finally starting to crawl a little. Uh, It's not much, but he's able to inch his chubby legs forward a little here and there. And I know uh, Barry was concerned because um, he should have been crawling a a few months ago, but we're just glad and thankful that he's showing some signs of mobility and we don't have to fear that he's going to end up as a sedentary blob for the rest of his life. And so uh, it's funny because we're trying to encourage Everett to crawl more. And so we'll, we'll cheer for him and celebrate as he's able to worm forward. And what's interesting and humorous is that Maddie's watching all of this, right? And so Maddie's taking this all in, and she wants to be congratulated as well. And so what she does is she'll rapidly make her way onto the ground and um, say... Watch me, Mommy. Watch me, Daddy. I can crawl too. And she'll just blaze across the carpet like a little caterpillar. And we're such great parents that um, we'll entertain Maddie and celebrate with her. But it's not like we're all that impressed by her crawling. Well, Why? It's obvious, right? Because at her age, she should know she's expected to crawl. And in fact, at her age, that better not be the only thing she knows how to do. She's able to walk, run, skip, jump, talk, sing, sometimes too much. Um, And whenever it gets to her age, if he's only able, uh, if he's not able to do the same, we won't be clapping our hands if he only knows how to crawl. You know, if he's 18 and he's still only crawling, that's not an occasion for celebrating, but concern. Why? Well, it's very simple, because growth is expected. Growth is expected. And yet so many times we forget this when it comes to our faith, when it comes to spiritual maturity. We treat salvation as the apex of Christian life, and then we are content rejoicing over this huge landmark for the rest of our days. Now, hear me clearly, I'm not diminishing how great it is when a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but that is not the end of the story. There's a reason that conversion is described, even in the Gospel of John, as new birth. New birth. Because coming to faith in Christ is only the beginning, not the end all. Baby Christians are supposed to develop into mature Christians. It's expected. And if you're still in the same spiritual spot, five or ten years ago when you first came to faith, that is as disturbing or alarming as a teenager who still acts like a toddler. That's not an occasion for celebrating. The celebration comes and continues as you continue to mature in the faith. You see, the end goal of Christianity is not just conversion, as wonderful as that is. The end goal of Christianity is Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness. And this is what theologians call sanctification sanctification, that we become more and more like our Lord and Savior. And this morning, we'll see Jesus address how the Christian grows in our passage. So if you haven't, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. Follow along as I read our passage for us, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. John 15, verses 1 to 8. Jesus... to be my disciples. Let's pray. God of utmost importance is the devastating reality that apart from you we can do nothing. And so we come in prayer to acknowledge our neediness, our desperation for you to come and open our hearts, make known to us your word that you would show us Christ and speak to us that we be nourished, edified, encouraged, that you would grant us a growth as we lean upon you, as we abide in you and you in us. So help us now, Lord, to understand the weightiness and the wealth of this passage, that our lives might be conformed to Christ, that we might depend and live totally dependent upon him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to tackle the topic of sanctification, which is just a fancy term for how we grow as Christians. How we grow as Christians. And if you're following along in our outline, the first point is this. We'll first look at the participants. The participants of sanctification. Now we all know how the Bible begins. That in the beginning God planted a garden in Eden. And in this garden, God planted Adam and Eve to work and watch over the garden. The first human beings, if you think about it, ever created were green thumbs. The story of Genesis continues with God's blessing and commission to them. He tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And since that day, the people of God literally grew up with agriculture in their backyard. It was part and parcel to their origin, to their mandate, to their thinking, to their everyday life. And this gardening lifestyle became so ingrained and intrinsic to the Israelites that God made it symbolic for them. He gave the people of God a national symbol, a national emblem. We're familiar with this practice today, right? All we have to do is look around the globe. The national symbol for the U.S.A. is the bald eagle, right? Noble, fearful, a respectable bird for respectable people. England has a lion. Canada has a maple leaf. China has a fortune cookie. No, just kidding. I don't know what China's (laughs) is. Might be that. But these national symbols are shorthand, right? They're just meant to represent the people. And for Israel... They had a symbol as well. Their symbol was a vine. Their national emblem was a vine. It's because the vine was ubiquitous in their life. It grew and spread throughout their land, reaching everywhere. It was minted onto their coin, their currency. It was even carved and engraved onto their temples. The vine, you see, was Israel's call sign. But notice what Jesus does in our passage. Notice what he says in verse 1. He now bears the symbol of the vine. In Jesus' seventh and final I am statement, he declares to his disciples, I am the true vine. Now in each of the previous I am statements, Jesus plays up various contrasts. You know, In contrast to the perishable quality of the world's bread, I am the bread of life. In contrast to the shady and suspect character of the robbers and hirelings, I am the good shepherd. And in our passage, Jesus is doing the same. He is making another comparison and he brings it out forcefully by putting the accent on one word. True. I am the true vine. He is the true vine in contrast, therefore, to the phony vine, to Israel and everyone in Jesus' day knew exactly what he was talking about. Because if you're familiar with the history of Israel, they were a privileged people. They were handpicked, chosen by God to showcase to the world how good it was to be in relationship with Him. And this was to be accomplished through a simple way. God blessed the Israelites so that they could be a blessing to the nations. That by Israel's holy devotion and righteous living, by the fruit, if you will, of their lives, foreign countries would flock to the Israelites because they, the Israelites, had demonstrated what it was like to know, to love, to abide with the one true living God. But what happened? Well, if we read our Old Testament, it's clear. The Israelites failed to do this. We saw this in our scripture reading From Isaiah 5. In that passage, God indicts the Israelites. He uses their call sign, the vine, to condemn them. Because in that passage, it tells of how God delights and diligently labors over his choice vineyard. Only to be rewarded with what? Wild grapes or sour grapes. Do you follow the parallel? God faithfully cares and attends to this people only to be rewarded with disobedience and infidelity. But now, here in John 15 1, Jesus announces he will succeed where Israel has failed. Jesus will be the true vine. He will be the one people gather to and attach themselves to for vitality and life. He will be the source of nourishment and blessing so branches produce good fruit to the honor and glory. Of the vine dresser. Now, what is this fruit? Here's my basic definition it's the supernatural byproduct or evidence of relying upon Jesus. It's the fruit in your life that can only come as a result of being rooted in Christ. So, let me just give you a few examples. First, character. You know, everyone in our day and age is taught to be nice, right? But loving your enemies the way that uh, the Bible commands us to is only possible by trusting in Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these are all fruit of a life indwelt by the Spirit and rooted in Jesus. So first, fruit can refer to our character. Secondly, not only character, but conduct, what you actually do. Again, we all as people are striving, working, endeavoring for an ultimate purpose, a greater goal. Some for selfish acclaim, others for financial security. But for the Christian, only those who are anchored in Christ will labor to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to God. Character, conduct, and lastly, an example of fruit is conversion. If you just glance down really quickly to verse 16, Jesus says that Christians are to go and bear fruit. And then he says this, and that your fruit should also abide. Which seems to strongly suggest and imply that the fruit Jesus is referring to is people. People who have come to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. That as you, Christian, live faithfully to Jesus, you'll reach out to others so that they too would come and experience the fullness of life found in the vine of Jesus. Character, conduct, conversion, all are Christian fruits, only produce by being rooted in Jesus. And we have this promise to us, not only because this is what the vine produces, but because this is also what the vine dresser is after. That's why this I am statement is unlike all the rest we've seen in the Gospel of John. Because it's the only one in which Jesus gives description about the Father. That we're given more detail about an additional participant. You see, in this analogy, Jesus is the true vine. People are the branches and the Father is the vine dresser. God is so adamant about fruit. He will not leave it to nature What a chance. He will be intimately involved to ensure the vine abounds with fruit. Now just think about the role of a vine dresser. He's always actively involved. He's always working. He breaks his back tilling the soil. He rises early to water the plants. He stays up late at night to put up the trellis. He's willing to persevere through grueling conditions and ache-inducing labor for the final payoff. And get this, the vine dresser doesn't endure the, the beating sun to show off his nice tan. He doesn't even stand proud and point to how vast his fields are or how green the branches may be. No, the vine dresser labors with one aim, one goal, one purpose. For the sake of fruit. Fruit. And really, in the end, that's all the vine dresser cares about. Having established the participants, we move now to our second and longest point, the process. The process. From the participants to the process, which is the bulk of our passage. And because it's so large, we could further break this heading into 3 subpoints: Cutting, pruning, and abiding. First, cutting. And this deals with those who show no sign of life. Those who don't bear any fruit at all. These are people who aren't part of the process of sanctification because they don't have salvation. They aren't saved. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, in contrast, he prunes that and will bear more fruit. Now let's focus on that first part. Notice what determines how the vine dresser responds. God handles each branch based on whether there is the presence of fruit or the absence of fruit. If there's no fruit, a branch is pointless. It's dead weight. It's just taking up space. So what does the Father do? He comes and removes it. And verse 6 tells us the fate of such a branch. It is cut off, thrown away, and then gathered Why? to be cast into the fire and burned. I don't think I need to elaborate on what Jesus is talking about. He's speaking about the fate of those who aren't genuine Christians, those who don't abide in Christ and bear fruit. Now, disclaimer, here at Redeemer Bible Church, we believe we are not saved by what we do, but what Jesus has done. We are not saved on the basis of our works, but Christ's work upon the cross. We believe in salvation by faith alone. But listen carefully, true faith never comes alone. True faith will show itself in true fruit. You know, many of us can quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9 from memory, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. And we put the period there. But we forget that there's verse 10. Which reads, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or in the words of Jesus elsewhere, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so faith is justified. Whether you have true faith is justified by your fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Just look at in our passage at the end of verse 8 that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So the presence of fruit is not the basis of our salvation, just the byproduct, the evidence, the proof of it. And this is such a relevant rubric because so many people today will plead humility when it comes to discerning the authenticity of someone's faith or even their own faith. And so we'll say to ourselves, well, we just don't know someone's heart. Only God can judge. And so if they say they're a Christian, well then who am I to say that they're not? And yes, that's true to a certain extent, to a certain degree. We do want to be slow about making premature conclusions. But let's not be ignorant and naive either. If it doesn't walk like a duck, quack like a duck, or look like a duck, well then you have no reason to be confident that creature is a duck. And so in the same, if a person doesn't look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, walk like Jesus, if there's no semblance of Christ, you have no reason to be confident in anyone's claim to Christianity. Don't confuse being gracious with being foolish. The absence of fruit should make you wonder if there's seed to begin with. After all, that's how God measures the legitimacy of someone's profession, by their practice. God evaluates the credibility of faith by the weight of their fruit. So friends, take inventory of your life. One helpful indicator of whether you are abiding in Christ is whether your life looks more like Jesus today than one year ago. And I use that time frame deliberately Because it takes time for fruit to grow. But in time, the fruit should grow, right? There may be a season of barrenness, but not a lifetime. The trajectory of true Christian faith is towards true Christian fruitfulness. So first, the process involves getting rid of all dead branches by cutting. The vine dresser now turns attention to fruitful branches. And so the second sub-point is pruning, pruning. God is so intent on fruitfulness, He's not satisfied at the presence of one fruit. Sure, the branch that is void of any fruit God will take away to be burned, but God doesn't just pat the branch that yields one apple and and then He goes away content. No, the branch that bears fruit, God prunes so that it produces more. This is of different cutting, a different cutting for Christians. You see, vine dressers prune branches to cut away the excess and to provide more room for more fruit. There's a popular show many of you may be familiar with. Um, I think it's on Lifetime or A&E. I'm not sure. They're all the same to me. Uh, It's a show called Hoarders. Right, hoarders, And it's a really fascinating show because the show documents and follows people who suffer from compulsive hoarding disorder. And so these individuals can't discard or get rid of old newspaper clippings or food wrappers or whatever it is that they're obsessed with. And so what do they do? They compile massive collections of this stuff in their homes. They essentially turn their houses into domestic landfills. One episode followed a lady named Shirley who kept every stray cat in her neighborhood. Every single stray cat. And as a result, her house was infested with 76 cats. 76 cats of which it was later discovered. 35 were dead. 35 were dead because they weren't being fed. Every room in this lady's house was cluttered with feces and the carpet and furniture was soaked with urine it was disgusting. And this lad, lady was prosecuted for animal cruelty. It's really quite sad. Her life is in shambles because it pains her too much to part from the very thing that is stifling and suffocating the life out of her. God will not let his children resign to the same tragic end. He prunes us to clear the way for life, to make room so that fruit would abound. And no one denies that it hurts. You know, when he snips away at what we cling on to, it's painful. But the pain shows us that we have misplaced what we were really meant to prize. The intense pain we feel when money or people fail us is an alarm going off that we're treasuring the wrong things the security of finances, or the stability of friendships. You see, God brings afflictions to weed out what's detrimental to our faith and make space for what is fruitful. He chips away at our idols so that we are left holding on to the only thing that can hold us, Him. And as He does, we become more like Him in the process. God prunes us to make room so that we can grow godly affections, godly aspiration, godly attributes, so that when we are heckled for our faith or providing an opportunity to share the gospel, we feel our fear of man being cut down and our boldness blossoming. When we find our schedules interrupted by an unexpected visitor or terrible traffic, we feel our impatience being clipped and a trust in God's sovereignty sprouting. When we're falsely accused, misunderstood, or wronged by another, we feel our self-righteousness being trimmed and our graciousness growing. Look, no one accidentally becomes a godly Christian, a mature Christian. Our faith is forged and fruit formed when God brings about real trials to whittle away the excess. We learn what it means to obey Christ and to live for Him when we're challenged by our colleagues, tempted by the world, or placed in an uncomfortable situation. Growing pains. These are the times that we are sensitized to our sins, our fears, our convictions, our hopes, and most of all, our utter need of Jesus Christ. These are the times when faith actually leads to fruit. Christian, your faith will never triumph if it is never tested. It only stay theoretical. Faith can only be refined through the fire, not without it. And fruit can only abound after pruning, not before it. Church, the pruning is painful. Again, no one will deny that. The pruning is painful, but it's a sign of life. It means you're spiritually alive if you feel it. Pruning is painful, but it's also a sign of his life, of his presence. The vine dresser dedicates the most attention when he has to shear the branch. Otherwise, he might accidentally lop off the whole thing. Trimming requires the vine dresser to come close and be personally engaged. So beloved, take heart. The pain doesn't mean he is far and away as we might think. The pain is the feel of his breath that he's near. He can only prune you when he's holding you in his hands. And this is accomplished by the word. By the word. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now this is an illusion. this harkens back to chapter 13 where the disciples are declared clean in Christ for placing their trust in Him. And so what Jesus is doing now is He's connecting the dots. He's giving us the whole scope of the process. He's linking the point of salvation, clean, with the process of sanctification, prune. In fact, in the Greek, the words sound the same. Prune in verse 2 and clean in verse 3. Katharoi versus Kathare. Very similar. What's the point? Well, Jesus is making it connected. Both salvation and sanctification are achieved through the Word. Through the Word. You are made clean by believing in Jesus' Word. And you are pruned by Jesus' Word. Jesus prays for His disciples as we will see in the weeks to come. In John 17, 17, He tells them, Sanctify them in the truth. Well, what's truth? Your word is truth. Do you see how the pruning provides an opportunity for the word? Do you see the dynamic between the the pain God inflicts and the growth that God brings? To help us along, listen to my good friend, the great C.H. Spurgeon. He said this, quote, Affliction, or pain, if you will, is the handle of the knife. Pain and affliction is the handle of the knife, but the knife, the actual blade, is the word. Affliction is the dresser that removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the knife may get at it. Or if you like a more modernized quote, as C.S. Lewis is renowned for saying, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts at us in our pains. The pain of pruning prompts us to listen. And many times we only hear God's word once we're hurting. And this is the message he's trying to get across. The final sub-point is abiding. The pruning prepares us, teaches us about abiding. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you and I don't need to be sharp to catch Jesus' main point in these verses. This passage is loaded with the word abide. Which means dwell, reside, remain. And what's intriguing is that it's a command. The image that should be produced in our heads is quite comical. It's as silly as going out at these doors, going to those trees in that park, and yelling at the branches. You know, stay here. Remain. Don't go anywhere. Abide. But well, that just goes to show how silly we are as Christians. That as Christians, we have to be commanded to stay, remain, reside, abide in Jesus. Why? Because abiding is not our go-to plan for getting things done. It's unnatural to our day-to-day living. We all know this. Our knee-jerk reaction is to do more. So that when work piles up, we dive in. When problem surfaces, we search for a practical solution, something we can dig our hands into. But Jesus humbles our proud hearts. We can't import the same method that we find success in the business field or in the school setting when it comes to spiritual vitality. Hear how conclusive this is. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. Nothing. You can't manufacture Christian fruit without abiding in Christ. So what does this abiding, remaining, dwelling look like? We might understand the concept, but how does this translate into our lives? Well, Jesus has already alluded to the solution in the pruning. And he now makes it more explicit in the abiding. Just take a peek at the beginning of verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and... My words abide in you. My words abide in you. Here's the hint Jesus offers. He equates abiding in him and he in you with his word. How does this gospel open up? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. A reference to Jesus And the Word God, Jesus, is with us. And the Word God is in us when we feast and imbibe His holy written Word. The Scriptures, the Bible that you hold in your hands. Psalm 1 picks up on a lot of the same motifs and themes of our passage. It says this, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. Planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, that doesn't mean abiding is void of activity, as we might think. Abiding isn't some irresponsible, trance like state where you sit perfectly still in order to tap into some inner source of peace. Abiding might actually require a lot of activity, but it springs forth from a heart reliant and resting in Jesus. Abiding might mean staying late in prayer, thinking deeper about the Word, trying harder to fight sin, moving faster to serve people, and working more intensely in honoring Jesus, but it is all rooted in an unswerving trust in God's Word and an utter dependency. Jesus Christ church abiding is simply breathing the Bible to commune with Christ an illustration that might help is the difference between the power you get from a gas tank and the power you get from an electrical socket you know with a gas tank the car is able to run as long as there is what fuel in the tank You can drive around. You can go from point A to point B. But once all the gas is gone, the car sputters to a halt. You have to bring it back into the station to fill up the tank and refuel. Power is in flux, up and down, full and empty. But with an electrical socket, it's very different. With an electrical socket, The power is constant and current coursing through the wires. You don't have to worry about it. So as long as the device is plugged in, there is an endless supply coursing through the appliance. Many of us approach the Christian life with a gas tank. We fill up on a Sunday when we come to church and then we dive into our weeks hoping that we have enough gas from the sermon, from the praise, from the fellowship we share just to get us through. But Jesus' teaching, the Christian life, well the Christian life is more like an electrical socket. We don't come in on a Sunday for a pit stop and hope that's enough spiritual boost to carry us through until we return again. We are to be plugged into Jesus daily. Sundays, you see, are only the culmination of what's supposed to be going on every day. That's why I'm borderline legalistic when it comes to devotions. Not because I'm all about prescribing some fair sake routine where we get to puff up our pie's chest because, oh wow, I've read my daily Bible plan today. No, but because it matches with the contour of Jesus' teaching on how desperate and dependent we are. We're the lame and the lost. We are the blind beggars. We are branches. Jesus is the vine. You've heard of people burning out from ministry or from work or from just being busy. But you know what? 99% of the time, the burnout comes not because there's so much to do, but because the power is drawn for the wrong source. Listen to Lamentations 3.22. It says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Have you ever wondered why it is that His mercies are new every morning? I'll tell you why. Because the mercies of yesterday are not sufficient to sustain you through today. You need new mercies every morning. New meditations of the gospel. New nourishment to hold you fast. Great is His faithfulness because He provides it each day if we would just abide in Him. And look how abiding affects not only what's going on in you, but what comes out of you. Look at verse 7. It says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We reach our last point. From the participants to the process and now finally the purpose. And we'll get there. Now prayer is one of the clearest expressions of abiding. Abiding. Because really, what else are you doing but being with God? Communication is indispensable to any relationship. In the Word, God speaks to us. And in prayer, we speak to God. And Jesus declares, those who abide in Him can be certain, can be assured to have their prayers answered. You know, sometimes when I tell Maddie, my daughter, to do something, she'll repeat it back to me in question form. And so I'll tell her, Maddie, it's time to brush your teeth. Or, Maddie, go eat your vegetables. And she'll echo back, Daddy, should I go brush my teeth? Daddy, should I eat my vegetables? And I think to myself, well, duh, yeah, that's what I just said. Now what has happened? My words have been so internalized in her little heart she externalizes it in her request. Our wills and desires align when she abides in me and my words. What she wishes for is exactly what I want. So the same with the Christian in God. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now why does this verse always ring true? When you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires are conformed to His desires. What you want is what He wants. When you abide, He answers because you pray for His promises. You pray for His purposes. When you ask for the awareness to seek the interests of others above yourself, does God not hear His own words in your prayer? Is that not what He desires and He has written in Philippians Chapter 2, when you plead for forgiveness for your sins and for the grace to forgive others, will God refuse the very prayer that Jesus upholds and models as exemplary in the Lord's prayer? Is that not what God wants? When you pray for strength to endure trials, for growth and godliness, for fruit to abound, and for God to be glorified, will God turn a deaf ear to His own voice? Absolutely not. It's what he is purpose and design. The words are right there in our last verse. This is the purpose, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You're in the craft coffee scene. Uh, Some places that you go to will offer. Uh, coffee cupping. And if you don't know what that is, it's just a very snobby, snooty way uh, for coffee tasting. You know, It just means coffee tasting. And so you go uh, to these storefronts and you try a number of coffee beans from different regions of the world. And the baristas and roasters will lead you through uh, this magical experience by first having you sniff an assortment of coffee grinds. And then what they do is they brew those same coffee beans so that now you can taste it in liquid form. And so you slurp up the coffee, you swirl it in your mouth, and you allow it to spread across your tongue so that you can catch the full range of flavors. And they'll instruct you to try to pick up on the body and aroma and acidity of that particular bean. You, know, you might taste a graham cracker or chocolate of, of a coffee from Brazil. Or you might be more partial to the, to the bright blood orange flavors of a coffee from Burundi. Now, throughout the whole cupping experience, you can't help but feel that there's this level of elitism, this air of arrogance almost as you participate, as if you have been invited into uh, the, holy, the holy of holies of coffee experiences reserved for special people. Why? Well, because these roasters... These coffee farmers take great pride in their work. They have spent a lifetime fine-tuning and perfecting the best technique to roast and to extract the most sublime flavors from this little fruit, a small coffee bean, so that when people sip on a cup of coffee and remark, this is amazing, the roasters and baristas, they beam with pride and they receive glory for the fruit of their labor. How much more so God? He delights and desires your sanctification because He takes pride in the fruit of His labor. And we can find much comfort and confidence knowing that God is fervent for fruitfulness. It gives us hope that God promises and purposes our sanctification That he is for our growth, not against it. And that he desires it so much that he stakes his name. And he takes ownership of his vine and branches. This is why he sent his son. Not just to save us, but to ransom and redeem a people for himself. This is why He sends His Spirit to guide and conform us into His image. This is why He prunes the Christian, reveals himself in the Word, gives us the privilege of prayer, and enfolds us into a community, into the church, so that we will continue to stir and stimulate one another to bear good fruit for the glory of His name. And by grace and faith, we will do so, and therefore prove to be his disciples. Let this passage provoke and produce within you a deepened gratitude for God's work and then a greater desire to participate in it by abiding in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the promises it shows us that we do not have to journey through this life by ourselves. Lord, we do not have to try to produce and manufacture morality or goodness or godliness by our own strength, our own efforts or intellect. But Lord, you call us to abide in you. Uh, You will not only save us but sanctify us. You call us to remain in Christ, to dwell upon your word, to seek you in prayer, that our, as our hearts are enamored and captivated by Jesus Christ, Lord, our lives would be conformed to Him, to Your purposes, that we would bear much fruit for Your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that. Lord, we plead with You to do what You have promised, to grow us in maturity for our joy and for Your glory's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.